Hello. My name is Logan Detmer. Um, I'm on staff here. I serve in a role in what we call an associate campus minister. Um, so basically, my primary role is to spend a lot of time with you. And so today I get to spend time up here. Sometimes it's across a coffee table. Other times it's a sporting event. So if this is the first time you've seen, saw me, see me, first time you see me right now, I'd like to see you some other time. So whether it's after this in the lobby or something, please um, come up and talk to me. And so as we get started this morning, we want to start with a word of prayer. Lord, this morning we seek an encounter with you. We seek that your heart, your wisdom, your voice, your power and strength call our attention to learn about you and know you. I pray that this morning we enter our time to do just that, to know you more and to love you more. In your name we pray, amen. So just a few weeks ago, my wife and I, who is sitting kind of in the middle here, if you remember Megan, she's right there, that's my wife, Reagan. Uh, we went to Daytona Beach, Florida on a family vacation. Uh, I've, I, I think that was our 15th year, so I actually believe, think I've spent more birthdays in Daytona Beach, Florida than I have in Indiana, which is where I'm from. Um, but while we were there, about midway through the week, uh, I was having trouble sleeping. There was just, we had talked about some things that were bothering me and whatever. Um, and so I did the best thing that we all do. I got on social media to help me go to sleep. And so I'm scrolling through basically every account that I have. Uh, and I end up on Twitter, and I'm reading through Twitter, and I find this tweet. And this tweet, uh, as soon as I read through it, my heart started racing, my gut started twisting, and it did the exact opposite thing of what I was trying to accomplish of going to sleep. And I just thought for even longer. And I know many of you have been in the same position. But this is, uh, this is the tweet that I read. Uh, it was from a girl that was a grade below me, um, but is about the same age as me. She's 23 now. I said, imagine being held accountable for the person you were at 18 and 19 for the rest of your life. I'll read it again just for the sake of hearing it. Imagine being held accountable for the person you were at 18 and 19 for the rest of your life. So I don't know about you, but as you hear that tweet, what kind of things stir up, but for me, I'm thinking, man, if I was still the same person I was, I was 18, 19, I'm only 23 now, it's not like I'm that far along, but if I was still that person, I would be so lost still, but also, those times of my life were the most formative, um, whether they were the giant mistakes I made, whether it was the people that came alongside me, whether it was uh, transitions in my family, and so I'm, I'm sure many of you have similar experiences from that time. But it seemed like uh, the person that had written this tweet didn't entirely come to reality with uh, how important whatever happened during that time actually was. It's like ages 18 and 19, that year period, whatever mistakes, morally, legally, or whatever they were, didn't affect um, who she is now. And I'm not sure that's entirely true. It seems like everything that happens, everything that happens every day, positive and negative, does something to form and shape who we become, who we grow into. And so I'm sitting here thinking through this, like, what happened during that time that it was just inexcusable, or what happened during that time? It was like, oh, it, it didn't mean that much to me. Uh, and so as I continue to think through this, I'm also like three weeks away from preparing for my sermon, 
in which we're going to be in Psalm 90 this morning. And in Psalm 90, we see this call to number our days. So the reality that every day is important. And so, so hearing this, uh, thinking through this tweet through the night, and then hearing the words of Psalm 90 continued to just twist and turn my heart. And so um, as, you, as, as I get ready to read Psalm 90 here, if you'd turn there with me and I'll read through our psalm for us this morning. Starting in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from ever to everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like a grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades away and withers. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set your iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may gain, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. So there are a few truths we're going to journey through um, in our time this morning in Psalm 90. But if you've been with us uh, this summer, something you know is every psalm is written out of a response to a certain circumstance or story. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a response to what has happened. It's written after they've experienced or had some form of encounter in the biblical story. And so for Psalm 90, it seems like uh, Moses wrote this prayer after what happens in Numbers 14.45, which is essentially where uh, the people decide to go into the promised land. They, they decide to like, take it for themselves, but because God's not on their side, uh, the Am Amalekites and Canaanites uh, defeat the Israelites and actually chase them deeper into the wilderness. Uh, and so if you just read that verse, it's like, well, I see some of that, but I think we need a little more from the Numbers story. And so uh, we're actually going to start a little bit of the background story with Numbers 13. Um, and so it's in this time, Numbers 13, God is actually uh, thinking about sending the Israelites into the promised land. They've been journeying from Egypt into the wilderness, into this land that's been promised to be fruitful, to be a blessing, to be an establishment for the people. And so 
uh, God uh, tells Moses to send 12 spies into the promised land to kind of scope out and see what's there for them. And so the, the spies do this. They go out and they come back and they're supposed to have a report for the people, uh, for the Israelites. But this report is not even like split five to five or uh, five to five, six to six or seven to, seven to five, but it's 10 to two. So 10 of the spies uh, report that the land is occupied by people that are too strong for the Israelites to overtake. They say if they go into the promised land, these people will destroy the Israelites. But then there's two other spies by the names of Joshua and Caleb who actually report that the land is what God has been saying the whole time. It does have the fruit. It has the establishment. It has a, it has a, a space and a place where the Israelites can now be established. Remember right now they're mobile. They've been wandering throughout this wilderness time. This would be a permanent residency for them to grow and dwell with God. But the people, the Israelites, uh, don't believe Joshua and Caleb. They actually listen to the stirring up, to the false testimony of the ten spies. And so out of this, the Lord becomes very angry because the Lord is trying to bless. The Lord is leading these people to goodness. He knows what's best for them. But yet they hear the doubts of these ten spies. And they even go to the point where they ask Moses uh, in Numbers 14, 2 through, 3, 2 through 3, they say, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Would, we ha- would that we died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? And so they say this, and they even go to the point, well, let's, let's find a leader and we'll just go back to Egypt. And so God, God hears this. He hears what, what the, how the people are responding to his will and his guidance uh, and God goes to the point. Um, God goes to the point where he's so angered by the, the disobedience and the sin of the Israelites that he responds that he will disinherit the nation and make a nation greater, 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 greater and mightier than the one that is now. God, God, in some ways, it says, "Well, I'll, I'll start over. I'll start again with goodness." But then, you, then in, in the Numbers, if you go to Numbers 14, there's a section where Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He goes to, to the feet of the Lord and is praying on behalf of the people, asking God to spare the Israelites. And so out of Moses' prayer, God then decides, well, um, because these people are disobedient, I will bless the children. The children will now get to enter the promised land, but the adults will not. And how that happens is he says, well... Uh, for 40 years, you will now wander in the wilderness. And so for 40 years, they'll wander in the wilderness, and the adults that are no longer permitted to enter the promised land will die and perish by way of disease, starvation, and sometimes even punishment sent from God. And so as, so Moses hears this from the Lord. He intercedes. He hears this from the Lord. So now he takes it to the people. That's his role in, in the uh, Israelite community. And as he tells these people, they obviously kind of get ticked off more, they're riled more, and they understand their destiny. They're already tired of being in the wilderness. And so when the next morning comes, the, uh, the Israelites decide to just take the land for themselves. That They decide to go through the ways of the hills and the valleys that will lead them to the promised land. And they decide, well, we'll, we'll just take it. And what we learn from Numbers 14.45 is... That doesn't work, right? The, the, the promised land was occupied by people 
that could only be overtaken if it was the Lord's blessing, the Lord's will, and they had their guidance. But because they had disobeyed, they no longer had that. And so as they try to take it for themselves, the uh, 1445 says the Amalekites and Canaanites drive them back down and out farther into the wilderness and even are chasing them in order to destroy them as much as they can. And that's where our psalm begins. Um, The people have just witnessed one of the greatest demonstrations of God's mercy. When Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, God still blesses them. But they've also witnessed one of the greatest demonstrations of God's wrath. We don't uh, exactly know how many Israelites actually went up through the valleys and the hills, and we don't know how many were destroyed. But we do know that it was enough to wreck their establishment. It was enough that they had to reestablish and resettle. But it's this story where we find ourselves. It's this story that provides our background for Psalm 90. And so uh, the number story is a testimony of God being present in a community. And Moses begins Psalm 90, 1 and 2, with that exact point, that God has dwelled among them. God was present in all generations. God was present with Adam and Eve. God was present with Noah. He was present in the ways in the time of Moses, and he was present during the times of judges and kings. And he's present uh, during the time of Jesus and in the ministry of Paul, and he's present now. And so in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 90, Moses affirmed that God was present. He was present from the beginning of creation and has dwelled among the people in all generations. Moses recognized, recognized that God is infinite. God is around all time. God is, is present in all generations. Moses knew that at one point God could have ended his, in, ended his ministry with the covenant people and restarted. And at, one, at many points, God was going to do just that. But rather than doing that, God continues to walk and be with the Israelite people. God is not confined to the limits of the current disobedience and sins of the people. And because of that, he's able to walk alongside all generations. So if we take the the truth that God is infinite and how Moses starts Psalm 90, if we take this idea that God has dwelled, been with uh, the, the covenant people in all generations, we, we can begin to understand the foundation for where the rest of Psalm 90 goes. And so as we read through the psalm, um, we notice that throughout it, Moses' prayer is not necessarily uplifting um, from a posture of attitude or necessarily adoration, um, but in many ways feels like he is, is grieving in some form. And so many scholars call this psalm a lament of community. Moses isn't necessarily just lamenting his own circumstance, but a circumstance that has uh, affected every, everyone in their area. And so Moses is, is lamenting this disobedience of the people and the consequence of their sin. The consequence of the sin was the disobedience to try and take the promised land for themselves. And so uh, as Moses grieves, we can see a common... Uh, theme where he, where he affirms the power, wrath, and sovereignty of God. And so the word sovereignty will be important 
uh, as, as, as we move on this morning. And so for the sake of simplicity, how I'm going to define sovereignty is God's ultimate desire for control, ultimate desire and control for goodness over creation. And so uh, God's sovereignty, God dwelling in the generations, is, is his desire is to lead people to goodness. And so Moses understands and affirms God's control and desire for the Israelites throughout the psalm. In Moses' prayer, he is purposeful to notice and understand the wrath of God. In verses 3 and 4, Moses recollects that God created humanity from dust and that humanity once again will return to dust. Moses reminds himself and his community that humanity is finite. God is infinite outside of time, but humanity, creation is finite. It's fragile. It will dissipate. Return, begin with dust, return to dust. Then, this then sets a base for where Moses goes um, through his prayer. And so uh, understanding the wrath and power of God and understanding the finiteness of humanity, Moses uh, then goes in verse 5 and he recollects the flood. One of, one of the first major times that God punishes the disobedience of the people. And then in verse 6, Moses compares life with that of Palestinian grass. It grows in the morning, but it's gone by night. And then in verse 7, Moses demonstrates the deep reality that, God, that God's, wrath, uh, God's wrath is a reminder that people are finite, that our time is limited. And then we have in verses 8 through 10, Moses speaks about how God, how God doesn't do these actions out of injustice. He doesn't do it out of a desire to say, you see, your life, your life is finite. I, I control every moment of your life. He doesn't do these things just because he can. He's not Thanos with the giant hand and snaps his finger. But he does it out of guidance for his people. And so if you have goodness on this side and, and evil on this side, and if God is sovereign... God wants to lead his people. Uh, his desire and control, he's leading his people to goodness. He doesn't place elements of wrath to say, see what I can do. Elements of wrath, elements of punishment, elements of evil in some ways are used to guide people back to goodness. His desire is to lead everyone here. And so as, as we disobey, as we sin, we keep stepping closer to destruction, to death, to evil. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin are death. Eventually, you, you, you sin so much to the point where it controls your entire being, your identity, that, that you are experiencing death. And so God is using elements of wrath and punishment in the Old Testament story to guide people back to his desire for goodness for them. He is sovereign. So we've seen Moses reiterate his understanding of God's sovereignty by recollecting how God continues... God continues to walk with the Israelites in their elements of disobedience and sin. As well as we see Moses demonstrate his understanding of why the, the Israelites have experienced the sovereignty through the acts of wrath. But Moses concludes this section of his psalm with verse 11. And verse 11 seems like Moses is actually asking the Israelite community, have we actually taken the time 
to consider the wrath and power of God? Have we contemplated what even has brought this wrath? So it's a similar question I think we even need to ask ourselves. Although the circumstances are a little different, the, the premise is the same. And so have we considered the weight of our sin? Have we considered the weight of our dis- disobedience? Have we considered the power of God's judgment on sin? If we don't take verse 11, 11 and consider the weight and burden and effects of sin and, dis- sin and disobedience, we'll look at God's acts of wrath and punishment as injustice. But an accurate view of God's wrath is destroying sin, which is ultimately justice. The acts of wrath and, uh, and punishment are done in order to lead back to goodness. That is justice. Injustice would be allowing us to work towards evil, to work towards death. And so Moses is lamenting on behalf of the community that does not understand the weight of their sin. They don't understand the weight of their disobedience. Their sin against God goes against his desire for goodness for them. Their sin goes against the sovereignty of God, as we've discussed throughout our morning. What they are choosing is not good. And God leads his people back to his desire for goodness through elements of wrath on sin. Essentially, we could say sin leads to wrath. At the beginning of Psalm 90, we read that God is present in all generations. As we read through the stories that took place before Moses, we we see how God was still present in all generations. And we see these stories all throughout the Old Testament, how God is trying to, from Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation of goodness, the rest of the Old Testament is a testimony of how God is trying to lead his people back into his goodness. That is his sovereignty, is to lead his people back to goodness, back to life for them. But in the Old Testament, we also see all these stories of wrath, and that is how it's carried out through God's covenant time in the Old Testament. But we see it, it, is, it is always out of an instance in a time of disobedience and sin. And so what I believe we learn from Psalm 90, the first half, verses 1 through 11, is that God is infinite. We are finite, but God is sovereign in all generations over his finite creation. And so if we have that in mind, if we understand the, the, the premise that Moses lays in uh, verses 1 through 11, we can begin to move on through our psalm and understand, well, it, if, if you look at, at the psalm, you notice it takes a pretty big turn through 12 through 17. Um, and so as, as we move in to verses 12 through 17, it's important to, to revisit the Numbers story in some ways, and, uh, and even the Old Testament story. So how does, how does the Old Testament story uh, turn out kind of after this time? 
semi-rhetorical. Yeah, I heard somebody say in the back. So, uh, <laughs> right? The people don't get it. The people continue to disobey. Even after a form where it seems like God has punished the Israelites in some way that it almost destroys all of them, and they, they still don't get it. But, and so as you follow the Old Testament story and you keep going through the Old Testament, you see the people just don't get it and get it and get it, but then you come across the gospel story in the New Testament, the turning point, where God now enters creation in the flesh in order to take on the wrath for all sin. It is the ultimate demonstration of God's sovereignty for creation. But he can only do this because he's infinite. He's not confined to the story of the Israelites during Numbers or the, the Adam and Eve in the beginning. God is outside of time. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. This is what allows him to take on the ultimate punishment, the entirety of wrath for sin. And so God enters creation through Jesus Christ, lives a sin-free life, takes upon the wrath of sin and death, and destroys sin's domination over a finite creation. It is the ultimate act of sovereignty. God enters creation in order to be a dwelling place, to be a representative that allows people to then walk towards goodness. And so we live in the light of knowing that the wrath of God was completely, completely paid for by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We, like the people of Moses, are called to recognize that God is infinite, we are finite, but God is sovereign in all generations over finite creation. So if, if we take that, what does that mean? What does it mean to live in light of the sovereign acts of the infinite God? And so Moses understood this. As I mentioned, it seems like 12 through 17 is a turning point. And so Moses understood that the life of humanity is brief. He knew that the wrath of God produced by sin would uh, destroy humanity. It would destroy all of us. But he also knew the sovereign heart of God. In verse 12, Moses asked God for the wisdom to learn to number our days. This isn't uh, out of the desire to live in crippling anxiety or to know the perfect day of, well, if my last day is in 740 days, I'll repent on that day and know Jesus. It's not for that sake. It is for the purpose to understand that God's wrath, got, that sin leads to God's wrath. And the covenant people should live daily in the knowledge and the understanding that each day is valuable, each day is important, each day we seek to live and know God. Each day we live with purpose in the sovereignty of God. In verse 14, Moses asked God to satisfy them in the morning with steadfast love. In 15, he asked God to bless them daily, just as many days as they have been afflicted. In verse 16, Moses asked God to expand this blessing and intentional lifestyle to the entire community. And finally, in verse 17, Moses asked God to, to establish their work of their hands. Essentially, Moses is asking God to take control of their community once again. 
He is asking God to reestablish the Israelite community after they have been punished and defeated by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. It seems like, verses 12 through 17, Moses is making a plea for God to dwell in their community once again, just as he had dwelled in the generations before and just as he's going to dwell in the generations after. The imagery of this word dwelling, Moses used it in the first verse, but this imagery of dwelling is common throughout the Bible. And some other ways to think of the word dwelling is um, through words like to sit down, to abide, to remain, or to inhabit. Moses is pleasing for God to once again be present and active with the Israelites despite their act of sin. Remember, God was leading the people, to, uh, the people of Israel um, into the promised land. That was the original, where we start with Numbers 13. God was ready to bless these people, even though they had still been in state of sin and disobedience where we begin. But then they decide, well, they, they hear uh, God's punishment after they li- listen to the spies, and so you have Moses intercedes, and then they hear, well, you're going to wander in the wilderness. So they go to bed, and they wake up the next morning and decide, well, I'll, I'll just take it for myself. Like, it's ironic because they're so upset about the ten spies report that the people are too powerful to overtake. But their natural response is, well, we'll, we'll just go do it anyways, when that's what they were originally upset about. Um, and so they go, and they're pushed out by the Amalekites and Canaanites. And so after such a defiant act by the people, it feels like God is no longer in their community. Like I said, we don't know how many were destroyed, but they've been pushed so far back in the wilderness, they're scattered. They, they, don't, they don't have an establishment yet once again. And so it was after this, this point in the story that Moses wrote this psalm, and this psalm first recognizing how God has continued to be th- with them through all generations. Secondly, Moses acknowledged how God continues to lead and guide through his sovereign will in light of the finite nature of humanity. And then verses 12 through 17, Moses pleased for God to return to the Israelite people. And I think from 12 through 17, what we learn most is that in order to live in light of God's infinite and sovereign nature over all generations, we must live in the daily need of the indwelling of God. And so in order to live in the light of God's infinite and sovereign nature over all generations, we must live in the daily need of the dwelling of God. Moses knows that if the people recognize the limitations of life and seek, le- and seek daily to know the guidance, will, and blessing of God, their community will once again be established. And so in Numbers 15:1, God uh, establishes the people, they establish the worship center, they enter the promised land, and uh, heaven becomes set right there in the promised land. So, well, we know that's not true, right? And so Moses is making this plea after all that's happened, and he's begging God to redwell in them. And so in Numbers 15:1, what does God do? God calls them to reestablish the law in their community. 
God instructs the people to centralize their worship. And so as the people do this, they begin to walk and, can, and, and get to know God. God is redwelling in them. He has reestablished himself, but yet they still continue to fail. They still continue to disobey, and they still are experiencing acts of wrath and punishment out of their sin and disobedience. But that's all the way up until the grand arrival of Jesus. It is through an act of self-sacrifice that an infinite and sovereign God redeems all of creation. Everyone gets to experience the freedom from wrath. It is the constant sovereignty of the will of God in Jesus that intercedes on the behalf of all of us in sin. Moses, with his covenant people, he interceded on behalf of the people in their sin. But now it is Jesus. Jesus intercedes on behalf of all of us. And so Romans 6.23, as we mentioned earlier, tells us that the wages of sin is death. Every testimony in the Old Testament after Genesis 2 is telling this story. Colossians 1.19 says that in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So if Moses in, in verses 12 through 17 is begging God to redwell in their community, and then we have the story of Jesus, where the fullness of God now dwells in Jesus. That means the mercy of God, the life of God now dwells in this man. And so the mercy of God towards sin can only be experienced in the life of Jesus. Moses prayed for God to dwell in their community. This took place in, in the tabernacle, the place where they believed God dwelled. But Romans 8, 9 through 11 now tells us that, that God dwells in us. And so I'm going to read uh, Romans 8, 9 through 11 for us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the, spirit, in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It is through this relationship as we learn, as Moses called us to do, to number our days. We are, in, we are intentional daily to call upon the spirit of God that is in all of us to learn how we will seek the heart of the Father through the mercy and grace of Jesus and the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit. Although sin is still present in our time, it no longer has control or domination over creation. Jesus took upon the weight of all sin for the freedom of all of us. And one day, sin will be completely pushed out of creation again. And, and that's, in many ways, the story of Revelation is God creating pure goodness once again for all his people. And so as we pray through and, and, and journey through Psalm 30 this morning, we ask that similar question. What does it mean to number our days? What does it mean to seek out and live out daily the indwelling of God, the indwelling of an infinite and sovereign God in our lives every single day? 
And so first, I think it very simply begins with, do you know Jesus? And so, <clears throat> do you know the man who is the full embodiment of God that paid the price of sin for you and a whole community and now dwells in you every day to lead you to the goodness of God's creation? Secondly, if you know Jesus, it looks a little more fleshed out in the journey and the process. Um, but, but for some of us, it looks very different than others. And so when I, I interned at my home church, Markle Church of Christ, three or four years ago, um, but my youth minister had just had his third child. Uh, and out of that came some Lord, uh, the Lord convicting and leading him to take uh, his time as a father more seriously. And so out of that came a response where he got three, like, giant cookie jars, and he has them in his office. And in those three giant cookie jars are marbles. And every marble represents one week until, his child gradu- until each child graduates from high school. So, so his oldest, um, Layla, had the least. And then Paxton in the middle, had his jar was pretty full. And then Harper's, like, didn't even fit in the jar. He had, like, a baggie in his desk. But, like, at one point, they'll all be in the jar. But every Monday, he would come in, and he'd pull out a marble. And he would sit and reflect um, with that marble as a reminder of how, how was I living daily to be a leader and guider and father in my family. And so he would, he would give thanksgiving to God about how he had done that well, how he had, had dwelled with his family, how he had led his family. But then he was also intentional to repent, to repent about how he had failed to be a father, when he had lost his anger too much, when he had even spoke... Um, harsh language to his family, when, when he cared about his kids so much, but he forgot about his wife, or he focused on his wife so much, he wasn't the, the father he was trying to be to his children. But for him, it was very literal. It was, here's a marble that represents every day until my children graduate high school. And for some of us, that's really helpful. Maybe it looks like something like that for you. For, other, for, other, for others of us, it may be something more simple or less direct. It could be the simple practice of stepping into a devotional every day. It could be the act of one hour of prayer, whether that's I actually sit down for one direct hour, or maybe it's increments throughout the day. It's five here and five there, or 15 there. Maybe it's the simple but glorious practice of telling yourself the gospel every time you wake up and every time you go to bed to remind yourself of your identity. We do these practices, we, we do these disciplines, as many people call them, to remind us to, to live each day intentionally, seeking the Spirit of God and His sovereign act, his, his leading and guiding to goodness for our lives. And so we don't do them out of obligation or out of to please someone, but we do them to learn and grow and get to know God more. And so this morning, just the two basic challenges are, do you know Jesus? And if so, how are we going to live to number our days? How are we going to live each day intentionally to seek the goodness that God has for us? And so this is what I want us to reflect upon when we take communion this morning. When we take communion, we are remembering and reminding ourselves of the sacrifice that Jesus made, the sacrifice for sin, the sacrifice for wrath. 
And so as we take the juice and bread this morning as that remembrance of the life, the perfection, and the redeeming work of Jesus, we ask you to reflect. And so if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to participate this morning. And as you partake, I ask us to go through just three simple practices. The first is to praise God for how he has set you free. So we take the wrath of sin seriously, as Moses called us to in verse 11. And we praise God that we no longer are set under that punishment. Secondly, we confess to God the sins that continue to burden and plague our lives. And third, we petition that we will continue to grow in the numbering of our days and the intentionality of our lives. Thank you.